I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high-quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Bantwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Why, hello, Shanti. Hi, Lynx. Hello to all of our listeners. Welcome to Muses. We're the podcast all about the dolls, the women, the journalists, the music makers, the music lovers, the lovers, the inspirations. Oh man, it's been it's been fun. It has been. I was in the park the other day talking to a friend and they were asking me questions about this and just realizing like we're coming on 4 years now and all the things that we've gotten to do because of this and all the people we've got to talk to and all the people on our list still to talk to. And it's so much fun every time we like cross another name out. And I'm really pumped for, you know, the ones that are happening here in the fall. So I hope everyone yeah. else is really excited. We got some good things coming up. It's been four years and 200, almost 200 episodes crazy it's crazy how did we do that i don't know i i really i i'm amazed and i guess it's just because we both love what we talk about so much and we have the passion there that's totally true hey we have a couple of new patrons that we need to give a warm welcome to and do you want to know who those patrons are please tell me okay welcome to heather Thank you so much for joining us. And you know, Brie. I do. Brie is a friend of ours. Thank you, Brie, for becoming a patron. We love you. You're beautiful. And we wish you all of the success in your booming music career that we see happening for you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So many amazing people have come into our lives because of this podcast as well. And Brie is one of them. So just another thing to be grateful for. And also welcome to Rhonda. We're so happy to have all of you. It really means a lot. We just recorded a video for our patrons, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you and welcome. Thank you and welcome. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash musespodcast. You can also go and leave us a five-star review and five stars and a review on iTunes. Apparently, it really helps other people find our show as well. And after 200 episodes almost, it's still nice to welcome new listeners. So if you've been with us for a long time or if you're just joining us and you're really liking what you're hearing, we would love it if you could share an episode or go ahead and write us a review. We would be forever grateful. Yes, it means a lot to us. And Shanti and I always share anytime we get like a new message and we're so excited to hear from you guys. So thank you for all of the support. It really does. It doesn't go unnoticed. Like we really do appreciate and care. So thank you. Right, Langs. What have you got for us today? Well, this was an exciting one. I was really happy to read this book this summer. I am going to talk about Debbie Harry. She published a book last year called Face It, and it was really interesting and fun. I noticed while reading, though, that I feel like she held back a lot on like her personal relationships with people. She mentions people that she cares about and, you know, says nice things, but she doesn't go into like great detail about like specifics when it comes to things like that and why I don't know I guess <laughs> sorry I, that was really whiny <laughs> like, why not why if you're if you're gonna go for it why not go all the way privacy is important to her I would say there's relationships with people in here where it's like literally a sentence but she mentions like they were dating for years <laughs> so I'm like oh okay but I don't know maybe I, f- I understand that because like obviously on the podcast and everything like we don't really talk about our we talk about some stories but there are definitely things that I just like having at least right now for myself and but yeah if you're writing a book it's it's not like it wasn't interesting still I mean she has an amazing life story so maybe she just didn't really want to focus it on the relationships and more just about the music and what was going on at the time. But again, it's certainly worth reading and it was still a lot of fun. And one fun thing that she added in the book that unfortunately I can't share with listeners, she had every couple chapters, she had fan art in the middle of it that she's collected over the years. I guess if you send her something or you give her something at a show, she actually kept all of that. So I'm sure there's been a lot of fans who had drawn her, given it to her, and then they pick up the book and there's their piece of artwork, which is so cool. And I thought that was a really nice fan groupy tribute in the middle of the book, you know? That's really nice. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I wonder kind of how she preserved them and where she kept them. Yeah, she must have so many. And yeah, it's, it is nice to know that, you know, your favorite artist, you took the time to dr- draw them and they're not just like throwing it in the trash when you leave, you know, like it did, it did mean something to her. So I thought that was really beautiful. Have you ever sketched your favorite or like a rock star or somebody? Have you ever, or have you ever created a piece of art and given it to a musician? I have definitely sketched tons of people that I love, but I've never 
given it to them. Okay. Do you, have you? I made a little like tiny gift bag for Sam Roberts and I forgot to give it to him. <laughs> I, like, brought it and I was when we interviewed him and I guess I was just so nervous or just focused on the interview and the gear working right, making sure the microphones were on. I forgot to give it to him and I think I made a piece of art once that was like kind of like a cross between Pete Doherty and this guy that I was obsessed with. Nice. And it's really pretty actually. Um, I think I painted on something and then I transferred it to something else and it's really beautiful. I kept it, uh, somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where it is. Maybe one day I'll frame it, but I didn't give it to them. It was just for me. A couple times in my teenage years, me and a couple of my friends, Erica and Angela, we would, or they would, cause I'm not a baker, but they would bake vegan cookies and we would give it to musicians that we liked. <laughs> So that's as close as I've come. It's not artwork, but yeah, we sometimes would bake the cookies and give them. That's pretty cute. I like that. Yeah. All right. So I'm just going to get into Debbie. So Debbie was born Angela Trimble on July 1st, 1945 in Miami. She says... Okay, sorry. I'm going to have to go ahead and interrupt you there. Yeah. I didn't know any of those things, and that wouldn't have been anything that I would have predicted. Well, it's actually really fascinating because she was a love child and her mother and father were high school sweethearts. They were torn apart and then they reunited later. Her mother got pregnant and then found out that this guy that she had been in love with was married with other kids. And so she gave birth to Angela and she put her up for adoption. And so when Angela was three months old, she was adopted by Richard and Kathy Harry, and they renamed her Debbie, and they relocated to Hawthorne, New Jersey. Okay. All righty. So that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. She was Debbie three months in, but originally she was Angela Trimble. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had no idea either. Debbie has what sounds like a pretty like, normal childhood, if you want to put it that way. She really loved playing in the woods, going to the movies, seeing her grandparents. She had a radio that meant a lot to her, of course. She began singing at a very young age in her church choir until she hit about like her teen years. When she was six, her mother got pregnant and had Debbie's younger sister, Martha, who she was very close with. She says by the time she was 13, she began bleaching her hair and making her own clothes. She was also a majorette. She joined a sorority. She talks a lot about her need for approval and identity, which, of course, like all of us go through. But I think a lot of that also stemmed from knowing that she was adopted. And that's just a big thing to process when you're young, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I dyed my hair for the first time when I was 10. What color? blonde uh highlights i got blonde highlights and i feel like i definitely there was a point in my life where i bleached it and also wore a blondie shirt at the same time um but i but i think now that i am i'm back to brunette and i am going to stay a brunette and i think that that's what suits me but there are people like marilyn monroe and debbie harry that aren't natural blondes Mm mm-hmm 
right? They're not yep. even somewhat blonde, but that is their color. <laughs> yeah. I find it interesting too, because I think there's almost all the redheads, like famous redheads weren't naturally red. Like Lucille Ball died. Um, Christina Hendricks died as red hair. And Margaret died red. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. My first time when I dyed my hair was when I was 13 and I dyed it blue. <laughs> you know what? I think it's what well, you had that like beautiful blonde hair already, right? Yeah. And the blue would probably take to it pretty easily. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Going from the brunette to the blonde is I've had some bad. I've had orange like so bad growing up in a small town and be like, can you can you dye my hair? And then leaving with like orange hair and be like, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I got lucky. All right. So Debbie talks about being sexualized by men at a very young age. She had some unwanted encounters with older men, flashers, that type of thing, which I thought was really interesting because I also remember being young and feeling like men were sexualizing me. Did you ever experience that? Yeah, I mean, men are shit. Yeah. No, I I I can remember Oh, I mean, th this can, th like, this can go oh, deep, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, this, like, this can go, like, I can remember being seven, or there's, like, times being, like, 12, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk about one that's not as heavy, and it's just, like, walking, I, I lived on a highway, mm -hmm. um, so to walk to our corner store, there was two routes that you could take, and I would take both, and one of them was just by the highway. And so I would walk with my friend on the highway and honks and hoots and shouts and stuff. Probably oh, yeah. since I was like 12. So yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I dealt with a lot of the same. She was also a sexual person from when she was very young. She had crushes on her the boys at school. By her teenage years, she was, you know, very much enjoying her sexuality. She says she always had a boyfriend who she would see for a couple months and then she kind of move on to the next guy. She says she always really loved sex, but carried the fear from being part of a small town and everyone knowing your business and judging you for it. And I totally get that. Yeah, I totally get that. Especially having brothers. I never wanted to like, quote unquote, embarrass my brothers. <laughs> yeah, that's not a great way to think, but like, I get it. Yeah, she had a friend who was sort of known as like the promiscuous girl in the town. And, you know, she she worried about having that attached to her as well. But by the end of high school, Debbie had begun to make trips to Manhattan and she would hang out in her favorite neighborhood, Greenwich Village. This is your literal dream. It's it's my dream. Absolutely. I was like so jealous reading this book, <laughs> but I got to like live it through her while reading and uh if only. But yeah, she wasn't quite ready to break free of that small town expectation. So after high school, she went to this women's Methodist school. She wanted to go to art school. She wanted to go to RISD, but it just was not financially viable for her family. So she went to this small college. In her second year, she began dating a guy. Uh, his name was Kenny, whose family was very upper class. His mom was a psychoanalyst. His father owned a nail polish company. They lived at 300 Central Park West, so very rich. Entering that world was very exciting for Debbie. She talks about uh, this really cool opportunity that she got to go to a Timothy Leary session where they discussed LSD and, you know, expansion of the mind and all of that through this relationship with this guy and 
that's just like one of those super cool experiences. And this was the early 60s again. So after two years at school, Debbie graduated with an associate arts degree. Cool. She managed again to snag my ultimate dream. She got an apartment on St. Mark's Place that was just $67 a month. Hmm. In Manhattan, on St. Mark's, it's just insanity. So she says, that first night in my home, lying in the bed, listening to the sounds of the street floating through my window, I felt like I was finally 20 years into my lifeline, the place where my next life would begin. Boy, was she right. Yes, she was. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. If you haven't checked out Best Fiends yet, what are you waiting for? Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, but it's a casual game that anyone can play. What level are you on now, Shanti? And any tips for our listeners? Links, I'm on level... 315. I would say that my tip is if you're feeling stuck on a level to go and change up your characters because you can choose who you want to play that level. And no level is impossible to beat. So just keep trying and you'll get it sooner rather than later. That is great advice. One of my favorite parts of the game is actually collecting all those cute characters. And I also just really love curling up on the couch and checking in on all the fun storylines that they have as well. I actually really enjoy playing when everybody at my house is watching sports on TV. I've never really liked watching uh, hockey or basketball or anything like that. So it's nice to be in the room with everybody, but to also be doing something that's keeping me entertained. And that's playing my game. Amazing. Yeah. No Wi-Fi, no problem. The internet is not required to play, so you can have fun anytime, anywhere, while we're all still socially distancing. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So she did go to uh, she did go to New York City to become an artist, but it wasn't too long before music began to take focus. She mentions seeing the Velvet Underground with Nico as well as Janis Joplin perform and being very mesmerized by both these women who were so commanding on stage but also so very different in their styles. She began buying backstage magazine she would look for audition notices. She would try out here and there among many other hopefuls. She began jamming a bit with musicians, singing in the background, banging drums. She ended up joining a band called The Wind in the Willows as a backup singer. Cool. That's probably a good way to start. Ease into it a little bit. Yeah. So she worked a few random jobs. She worked in a factory. She worked at the BBC for a time before getting a job at one of New York's first head shops in the East Village. What's, What's a that? head shop? It's a, like a marijuana, like where you would buy bongs and papers and... Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. So yeah, at this head shop, it was really a great place for meeting fellow outsider people like her. Uh, she mentions that she met Joey Skaggs, who is a pretty famous performance artist known mostly for his media pranks and hoaxes. 
She recounts going to his house one day and him jumping on her, tearing her clothes off, which she welcomed. But when he went to take his off or she tried to take his off, he like backed off. And she says it was only then that she realized there was another dude in the room with a camera filming it all. Not cool, Jimmy Skaggs. The interesting thing, Joey Skaggs, but yes. <laughs> the interesting thing, and this happens more than once in Debbie's book where I was like, oh, is that she says, of course, she was like shocked and furious, but also it like turned her on. Oh, okay, cool. I know that she's posed nude a few times before, right? Yeah. So maybe she was just kind of always comfortable with her body and was okay with uh showing her naked bond it's interesting actually because she does actually talk about never feeling truly comfortable in her skin and sexy and like the way that we see her of course but i think that's just something all women struggle with i mean what woman is just 100 percent like happy with what they got right yes and perhaps i don't know what was going on in debbie harry's mind at all and perhaps i should just keep on listening <laughs> uh but yeah i just saw it like it's like, that's great that she enjoyed the experience, but, you know, let warn a woman first, like ask permission. And then, you know, it's just different time, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I can't, can't say anything nice about that. Uh, she does say she has no idea what happened to that film, but she assumes like it's still out there somewhere. I mentioned she ended up joining the wind and the willows as a backup singer. And that was in the summer of 1968. And they released their debut album that year as well. She sang on one song and otherwise just really felt like wallpaper in this large group. It was like seven or eight different people in the band and she just wasn't really happy with that. She had no say in what was happening. So she decided, I'm just going to leave this group. Uh, at the time, she'd moved in with the drummer. His name was Gil Fields. She was looking for her next job and he suggested, like, why don't you check out Max's Kansas City? Why not just check out Max's Kansas City? Why not just live the life of my dreams? You never know what could happen over there. It's, it's New York. It's 1970. 68. 68. <laughs> you never know. So, yeah, she talks about her time at Max's, uh, the Warhol crowd, the actors and the musicians that were there, Jane Fonda, Jefferson Airplane. She mentions Janis Joplin was a great tipper. She says... All these people all doing in their own way what I had dreamed of doing and what I had come here to do, and I was waiting on them. It was frustrating but helpful in a way because I was on shaky ground back then, hypersensitive to criticism, and I guess it helped toughen me up. It was hard work physically, and some days were rougher than others, but when I think back, it was one of the best times in my life all in all. Oh, I love that. This is a pretty relatable story so far. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Go on. She talks about some of the Max's flings that she had. Eric Emerson, who was like a Warhol star, a man named Jerry Dorf, who lived in Los Angeles. That guy, Jerry, actually convinced her to leave her job at Max's and move in with him. And she actually like went out to L.A. to live with him. But after like a month, she realized, oh, shit, I made a huge mistake here. And she moved back to New York. She tried to get her job back, but she quit so abruptly that Mickey Ruskin refused to hire her back. 
So, Hmm. yeah. So that's not good, but I predict that something else that's good might come along for her. Well, instead of going back to Max's, she got a job as a Playboy bunny. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She describes, yeah, she describes the rigorous training process and that it was really a much harder gig than Max's. She lasted about nine months there. She really felt like things weren't progressing the way she had envisioned. And she went back home to New Jersey to live with her family. And then she ended up moving in with a boyfriend that she had. Now, this boyfriend was not a good scene. And he would end up becoming a crazy stalker who put a pistol against her cheek and tried to rape her later on. And that's basically what caused her to leave Jersey again. And... In It was about like 1972 now, where she's kind of doing the commute from Jersey back and forth, still, you know, going to the city to socialize and to go to shows and everything. This is around the time that she met the New York Dolls, and she really loved seeing them live, and she ended up becoming friends with them. So she says that she had a really big crush on David Johansson, and she slept with him, but only once. And she also mentions like driving around with them and all their girlfriends. And around that time, I'm pretty sure Johnny Thunders was dating Sable Star. So her and Debbie, she doesn't mention Sable in the book, but I know that they were friends. And so I'm just picturing them like hanging out, driving, you know, in the city, all in the car together. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. 
Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I kind of wish she would have mentioned Sable Star. Yeah, and she knew like Nancy Spongin as well, but she doesn't mention like any of the women, BB, none of those, like none of the other women in that scene. That's too bad, but yeah. okay. I'm still having a good time. Yeah. Go on. So she says of the dolls, I figured now that what attracted me so much to their shows was that I wanted to be just like them. In fact, I wanted to be them. I just didn't know how to get it rolling. Luckily, she met a woman named Elda Gentile, Gentile, who had a son with Eric Emerson, who was, again, her Max's fling. She was also in the Warhol scene as well. And she suggested to Debbie, like, how about we start our own group with another girl named Roseanne Ross. She quit very soon after that and was replaced by Amanda Jones. And thus the stilettos were born. So, oh. yeah, I had no idea about the stilettos. They had an ever-revolving band, which even included Marky Ramone for a time. And after their first gig, Debbie met Chris Stein. Chris replaced one of the band members soon after that and became their bass player. Would... Chris go on to be in Blondie eventually? Oh, yes. Okay. So she says, This was the beginning of our musical relationship and friendship. I loved the way he played and moved and looked. He was very laid back. We laughed at the same things and had fun together. He wasn't macho or possessive. But we were friends first. We took our time. I don't know if you know this, but Debbie and Chris become an item. Okay, I, I actually didn't know that. I'm not surprised, but I know very little about Debbie, Harry, and Blondie. Um, so anything that I'm saying is purely, <laughs> I'm just guessing here. <laughs> well, great. That's why I'm doing the episode on her, right? Right. So by this time, Debbie moved back to the city. She had her crazy ex stalking her. She went to the police. They were useless, of course. It wasn't until one day that her ex called and Chris answered the phone that he stopped harassing her. Debbie says, at the time, Chris and I hadn't made it, but right after that, we did. Then we kept on making it for 13 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't think it could be done, but it was so easy. So the stilettos were doing their own thing, and they actually had like a director named Tony Agracia in Gracia. He had worked with the Warhol crew and was the stage director, and he really began shaping their onstage image. He was a big fan of method acting and taught Debbie about that way of acting, and she kind of began using that while performing. Mm. Yeah. They weren't, they were playing gigs, but they weren't making money. David and Angela Bowie attended one of their shows. They opened for television. But overall, Debbie still felt like she wasn't in the place that she wanted to be. Her and Chris ended up quitting and forming their own band. 
with two other members, Fred Smith and Billy O'Connor came with them. And within weeks, they were opening for the Ramones as Angel and the Snake. And they had that name for two or three shows before changing it to the name Blondie. And it was actually Blondie and the Bonsai Babies. And then they short formed it to Blondie finally. Do you know who came up with the name Blondie? Or I think it was just like something that was like shouted at her often. And like, it just, it was like a funny thing that happened type of thing. Oh, like, hey, Blondie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, that was the one. I don't even mind Blondie and the Bonsai Babies. No. Um, But short form is better. Uh, a fun fact, they had backup singers at first, two of them, Dish and Snooky Bellamo, Bellamo, and their sisters, and they're famous because they created the Manic Panic hairline. Oh, neato. Yeah. <laughs> so after one great gig at CBGB's, Debbie recounts this horrifying story about her and Chris heading back to his apartment, and they were mugged. Now, this guy was not satisfied with what they had on them. He came into their apartment as well. And he actually ended up raping Debbie and stealing some of their guitars. Oh, no. It's the interesting thing about it is that I guess she was so she was just able to detach from it so much. She says that she like never really felt scared and was really more upset about the guitars being stolen than the rape. Okay. Yeah. It's a strange thing in the book because it's like two or three paragraphs and it's like, it's like, oh, this happened and bummer about the guitars next subject. So I don't, I'm sure it affected her maybe in ways she didn't realize or doesn't want to talk about. But the way that she writes it is that like, it just, it's just something that happened type of thing. It wasn't like a trauma. Okay, then. Yeah. You know, that's what, that's what we have to accept. Yes. Good. Okay. So Blondie were having fun. They were playing gigs, but it seemed like all of their friends' bands were getting ahead while they were stuck. Patti Smith, Television, the Ramones, they were all on labels now, but they were still struggling. And they were shifting band members as well. Clem Burke and Gary Valentine joined around this time. Fred Smith was out. Fred Smith went on to join Television, though. They played CBGBs every weekend for seven months straight and got paid in beer. (laughs) They recorded their- As I'm taking a sip of my white cloth. <laughs> mm, sounds pretty good. <laughs> they recorded their first demos that summer, uh, 1975, but nothing really came of it. They were released four years later, though, independently, the demos by the person who recorded it, not by uh, Blondie. So they're okay, out- so our latest or our the last episode that I presented, Loretta Lynn. Her rise to fame, although she didn't get into music until she was later, once she was in, she went fast. So Debbie's taken a while, right? Yeah. She wasn't an overnight sensation. It's been a couple of years in the making, a couple of different band changes, band names, everything. Yes. Yeah. She's just trying to find her place, basically. So if you remember, I mentioned the method acting that Tony had taught Debbie. Debbie really admired Marilyn Monroe. And, of course, she definitely went on to use that image and persona in her music, but she wanted to make it a little more, like, punk and and androgynous. She says, looking back, she feels her blondie persona was almost a sort of transsexual creature and that she really 
began developing the blondie look that we all know and love like around this time. She would go to secondhand stores and throw looks together. The infamous zebra striped mini dress that she's been photographed in was a pillowcase that she found in the trash that she mm-hmm. turned into a dress. Oh, right on. Right. Her and Chris would just go wandering the streets looking for interesting trash that would make good props for photo shoots and whatnot. The first photos that Chris started taking of Debbie, they would send them to a new magazine at the time called Punk Magazine, which if you didn't know, that's Legs McNeil. He wrote, Please Kill Me. He That was his magazine that he created back then. Okay, right on. Yeah. And so this is like, finally, they're starting to get a little publicity, but just in, you know, smaller punk type of magazines. Do you know that I went out as Debbie Harry? For Halloween one year? I feel like I've seen a picture of this. And it you was You know amazing. what? I'll send it to you. You can put it up when yes. or we'll put it up in the stories or something when when you put the episode up. Uh and then because I happened to be out at a bar that night with a band that was playing and the band all happened to sort of dress alike, I got them to stand behind me and make them look like my 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 band. Mm-hmm. I totally forgot about that. And I had just Googled the picture of Debbie Harry in that zebra dress. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, I should go out for her as Halloween. Oh, I already did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that dress. There's a quote later in the book where Debbie talks about the impact of that image. Yeah. She says, so much of what has been written about me has been about how I look. It sometimes made me wonder if I've ever accomplished anything beyond my image. Never mind. I love doing what I do regardless of appreciation, and there really is no accounting for taste. Luckily, the face I was born with has been a huge asset, and I have to admit I like being a pretty person. Uh, yeah. I mean, those <laughs> fucking cheekbones. Holy shit. She's and those so lips. Oh, yeah. the lips. Oh, my God. I'm just going to show her lips to my lip lady and be like, that. <laughs> that's what I want. There is a chapter in the book where Debbie talks about some scary close encounters that she's had with death or scary moments in her life. A potentially bad car accident was happened around this time. She had run-ins with, you know, thieves and junkies in the East Village. Uh, I'm going to share the scariest one. One night, Debbie wanted to go to this New York doll party that was happening But none of her friends wanted to join. But she was like, I'm going anyway. I'm going alone. So around 2 a.m., she decided to walk across town in these very high heels. She soon realized that's a big mistake. But she couldn't take them off because, you know, New York streets aren't the cleanest. So she was trying to find a cab, but they didn't really go into the East Village at the time because it was a very unsafe place. So then she noticed a white car circling her. Mm -hmm. And... A man inside asked if she wanted a ride. She said no. He circled around a couple more times. He was good looking. He seemed really nice. She was really hurting from her feet and everything. Finally, she just accepted the ride she got in. And she thanked him. And then suddenly it was just silence, like no conversation. He was just awkward. And she says right away she noticed his awful body odor. So she went to open the window and noticed there was no window crank or handle to open the door. Oh, no, that's the worst. It's everybody's worst nightmare. Yeah. She says the inside of the car was basically like the one in Death Proof, the Tarantino film. 
Yeah. I hate it. I hate it. Go on. <laughs> so right away, she was like, fuck, I'm in danger. And she kind of went into survival mode. She managed to squeeze her arm through a very tiny space that was in the window and push it down and open the car door from the outside. And the driver ended up stepping on the gas and the door swung open and she fell out, but she was basically uninjured. And she ran the last two blocks of the party and the driver never came back. She would have been dead. He would have killed her. Yes, but the, He was going to kill her. Here's the crazy thing. About 15 years later, she's reading like Time or Newsweek on a flight to L.A. And there's this story about Ted Bundy being executed. And she realized that was the man that picked her up. You're fucking kidding me. Crazy, huh? She was so lucky. Yeah. Ted Bundy? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. I thought it was going to... Okay. Yeah. I mean, she was that close to being a victim of his. I've watched so much Ted Bundy stuff. (laughs) I feel like this was never... This is never mentioned. Yeah. There's been some speculation on, like, if that was true or not. Like, if it really was him. But she's like, I... I know that face. Like, I was terrified. I I know who it was. Oh, my God. Yeah. I know. It was wild, huh? Yeah. (sighs) All right. Back to happier things. (laughs) Everybody compose yourselves. Let's get back into it. So in August of 76, Blondie began working on their debut album. They signed with Instant Records and Private Stock and released their first single called X Offender. Let's play a clip. So, not bad. Not bad for a first single, huh? It was originally called Sex Offender, but the label was not a fan of that. So it came to X Offender. <laughs> um, Probably a good choice. To promote the album, the record company decided to make some posters and plaster them all over Times Square. The band insisted that they all be on the poster, which the record company agreed to. But of course, when they saw the posters up, it was just a photo of Debbie in a see-through blouse. Ooh. My first reaction is, do we have that photo? My second reaction is, is it okay that that was my reaction? (laughs) You can find it for sure. The photo itself came from a shoot that was done with the whole band and she had actually been promised that they would crop her with to be just the head. She didn't want to be in a see-through blouse in Times Square. So she was furious. And mm. she went in. She confronted the execs. Surprisingly, or not surprisingly, they couldn't have cared less. You know, sex sells, like, blah, blah, blah. So that was, like, her first uh, encounter with, you know, music execs not giving a shit about what you want and like what you want to project for your band and everything. Right. The band hit the road for the first time in February of 77. A big goal, which 
they succeeded in was conquering L.A. She talks about Rodney Bingenheimer playing them all the time on his radio show and playing at the Whiskey. Fun fact, Tom Petty opened for them the first week. Yeah. And then the second week they played with the Ramones. She has a fun story about Phil Spector coming to a show. He invited the band and Rodney back to his place where he did W.C. Fields impressions, ordered them a pizza, sat down at the piano and forced Debbie to sing a bunch of Renette songs. And she didn't want to, but she was like forced to. And she says, a little later, when we were sitting together on the couch, Phil took out his gun, stuck it into the top of my thigh high leather blute and said, bang, bang. Okay, Phil. It's just okay. insane, like, the amount of stories about Phil Spector being an absolute nutcase and that, like, no one, it was just accepted. Okay, Phil Spector, cool party trick. Yeah, I I don't, it's hard to know. We have so much going on right now and we're recording so many episodes and, and interviews. It's hard to know the sequencing of when things are coming out. But when I was researching May Pang and John Lennon, well, Phil Spector certainly came up (laughs) or was it Chris O'Dell's book? When I was rereading Chris O'Dell's book, she has a story about Phil Spector and it's like, oh yeah, this fucking guy. They all have a story and it's like always involves guns and like craziness. (laughs) Yeah. No wonder he's in jail right now for shooting someone. Like, yeah. All right. So after the, after the LA shows came their first real tour with Iggy Pop and David Bowie. Holy shit. Yeah. They had never met them before, but it was obviously a huge deal to them since they know that Iggy and Bowie could have picked anyone to open for them. So they really felt honored that they were chosen. Now, she says, The door opened and David and Iggy walked in to introduce themselves. We all gasped. We were starstruck and dumb as shit, but they were so congenial and friendly. (laughs) Every night... She would watch them in the wings and even at soundtrack, just trying to learn from the masters. She says that she really learned how to work large stages by watching them as she was used to just standing in one place because it was always like small venues for them. Right. Right. She also recounts a day when Bowie and Iggy were looking for blow and she happened to have a gram that a friend gave her and she wasn't really a big fan of cocaine. So she hadn't touched much of it and she gave it to them and she says that they sucked it back in one swoop. And now I'm, I'm quoting her. She says, after they did the blow, David pulled out his cock as if I were the official cock checker or something. David's size was notorious, of course, and he loved to pull it out with both men and women. It was so funny, adorable, and sexy. Was it? That's like one of those other moments now where I'm like, I mean, I certainly would be happy if David Bowie wanted to show me his cock. But without asking first, you're just throwing it out there in rooms full of people. I don't even know what way is up and what way is down anymore. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was thinking earlier that Debbie Harry, David Bowie, and Iggy Pop is the three-way of my dreams. Yeah, for real. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, again, wow. she she was, you know. And then happy. what was Iggy? Okay, okay, okay. So he whips out his cock. Yeah, it's just to sexy. Throw. Just It's to- funny. And adorable. It's adorable. David Bowie's cock is adorable. And then what? He's just like, okay. And then he just puts back in his pants and apparently, just go on? 
We just move forwards. That's the end of the story in her book. So he just liked people to inspect his cock every once in a while. Okay, yeah, because she was, was she maybe the cock inspector is what he might have been asking. And that's what she might have had to ask herself at some point. Question about cocaine. Uh, Okay, she wasn't into it at the time, but would she, is she going to get into it? Well, I was like, she wasn't into it. She just didn't enjoy it that much, but she was definitely like doing it back then. Yeah. Cause she, she doesn't so get like more little. into it. She just, she's just so little. She is right? like, she's she just so little, but I think her drug of choice was heroin. That'll do it. Yeah. Very different vibe from cocaine. Okay. Next, they headed to the UK. They opened for television and they really experienced the punk scene across the pond before heading back home to begin work on their second album, Plastic Letters. So Gary Valentine wanted to quit the band. So after the second album, their managers kind of just fired him abruptly, which caused this dark kind of nervous mood over the album. And they also moved from private stock to Chrysalis Records at this point. So Plastic Letters was released in February of 78, and they began yet another insane tour schedule. They worked really like nonstop for months and they were until they were finally given some time off that the tour. But that was to make their third album, Parallel Lines. It's actually kind of crazy how much artists back then really had to like pump out these albums. It wasn't like now where you can go a decade between albums and people are still happy right not according to the ceo of spotify you can't oh god i was reading that and just, uh, uh. yeah i know what you mean though i i know what you're talking about I was, yeah so by their third album parallel lines they were really making a scene for themselves and they were finally working in a high budget studio with impressive producers this album is so packed full of incredible numbers you got hanging on the telephone sunday girl pretty baby one way or another and of course heart of glass um but when the record company heard the album they weren't happy they were like there's no hit single on this but um right okay they were really steadfast with it they released it in september of 78 and so far their singles were making hits overseas but they had yet to make a hit at home in the states that is until heart of glass was released Shall we play a clip of Heart of Glass? Please. You know, that's my go-to karaoke song. Is it? Yep. I had no idea. I can't sing that high-pitched. Yeah. She's got pretty good range, right? Yeah, she really does. Because a part of me goes, well, I can't really... I could probably not go as low as as she does because I'm a little bit higher up. But uh, yeah, I definitely started off singing that song in karaoke. But man, nobody does it like her. 
One thing I learned that I had no idea about was that Chris Stein and their friend Glenn O'Brien at this point from 1978 to 1982 had a weekly public access show in New York City. Chris would be on whenever they weren't touring and Glenn hosted it when he was. And they had guests such as, of course, Debbie, David Bowie, Mick Jones, David Byrne, Klaus Nomi, George Clinton, and Basquiat. Oh, okay. Yeah, I searched YouTube. You can find some episodes and some clips on there. It looks like it must have been the most fun ever. It's just, you know, them hanging out with their friends on public access TV doing crazy shit. There's like an episode where Debbie Harry's just like pogo sticking. (laughs) like that's the kind of things that they were doing um yeah another fun fact is that chris and debbie bought the first painting that basquiat ever sold which was self-portrait with suzanne and they bought it for only three hundred dollars wow yeah and yeah also she still owns the portrait that warhol did of her cool yeah she's also in the film downtown 81 with basquiat and they have a kissing scene and she says it was a great kiss and her favorite part of shooting that and for those who don't know their music video for rapture blondie's music video basquiat is in it i think he plays the dj in it nice yeah i'm a huge basquiat fan so is tj oh he's so good So Debbie had some small parts in some Friends films here and there, but in 1980, she had her first starring role in a film called Union City. She'd been really nervous and, you know, she had dreamed of being in film. So she decided, I'm going to give it a go. If I don't like it, I don't have to act again. And she found she really enjoyed the process. One fascinating thing that I didn't know about either was that her and Chris almost remade Jean-Luc Godard's film Alphaville. I actually have that poster hanging in my room. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, that would have been interesting. They never, they have, she has a funny story, actually, that like she met with Godard and she bought the rights from him for like a thousand dollars or something like that. And then they found out later that like he had no control over the rights. Like they, he just took their money. <laughs> oh, Okay. She was also sent the script to Blade Runner, but the record label kept blocking good scripts from going to her because they didn't want her doing anything other than music. They had already written some songs for films before, uh, like the one Debbie was in Union City, but the most memorable one came when they were asked to perform a theme song for American Gigolo. The song that came out of that was Call Me, and it became their biggest selling single of their career. So we got to play a little bit of Call Me. Let's do it. It wasn't until reading this book that, like, I really realized just how many great songs they have. Oh. 
like I, I knew they had great songs. Like I know all those songs, but like reading about them, thinking about it, like one after the other, after the other, like they were very good. Like they really had great tunes. Look, great tunes, killer cheekbones. It's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> Some people get it all. <laughs> and like a $56 place in New York in the 60s. Come on. It's not fair. Come on. So that song, Call Me, was such a hit that Debbie was asked to perform it on The Muppet Show. She also performed One Way or Another and did a skit as a Frog Scout. You can check all that out on YouTube. It was actually a career highlight for Debbie. She really enjoyed being there and meeting Jim Henson and all of that. I love that. Like, I love linda ronstadt's work with the muppets like i just i'm a huge muppet fan yeah huge yeah so and I, i'm gonna check that out oh, for sure it's so fun and it's really fun watching her sing one way or another which is about like stalking someone with like the muppets <laughs> <laughs> So in 1980, they released Auto American, which they recorded in L.A., which was also a first for them. They stayed at the Chateau Marmont in one of the bungalows by the pool. Have you ever snuck into the pool at the Chateau Marmont, Lynx? I might have. (laughs) (laughs) That's sweet. That's awesome. Great. Yeah, those bungalows are clearly cute, too. Yeah. And the tide is high in Rapture on that album. And Rapture became the first rap video that aired on MTV. Oh, neat. Yeah. She talks about wanting to perform it on Saturday Night Live. And they brought the hip hop band Funky 4 Plus 1 to perform with them. But the Saturday Night Live execs were nervous about it and only allowed them to perform it during the credit roll at the end. It's so ridiculous, isn't it? Saturday Night Live execs. Yeah. She says the entertainment industry was basically scared of hip-hop. Yeah. No, yeah. No surprise. By this time in their career, she had toured relentlessly, released five albums in five years. They were just over the constant hectic schedule, and they decided to cut back touring to explore their other opportunities. So that's what happened in 1981 when Debbie released her first solo album, Cuckoo. Okay, so we're like flying through here. We are now in the 80s. Yes, 1981. She's going solo. She's going solo. She talks a bit about working with the artist H.R. Geiger, who did the cover art as well as two music videos with her. Geiger is known because he did the art for Alien and Aliens. Like he, he did the set pieces and everything. That's like his work. He did two music videos. And both are really cool. They're on YouTube. They're very much a departure from what Blondie was. And, of course, the label wasn't too keen on that and really didn't do much to help its success. They didn't want to really promote it that much. And her look in it, like, Geiger did, like, a face molding of hers. It's dark. She's She kind of looks like a machine. They just, they were like, this isn't sexy. What is this? And just didn't want anything to do with it, basically, which is unfortunate. I'm going to check that out. That sounds actually really fucking cool. I bet Lady Gaga loved it. It is really cool. Yeah. And Debbie was enjoying her time away from Blondie. Her and Chris co-hosted Saturday Night Live together. They wrote the title song for the John Waters film, Polyester. About a year later, Blondie reunited to record The Hunter. 
But by this point, things were really going downhill in like every way possible. There had been a lot of tension in the band, which is another reason they kind of wanted to take that time apart. And making this album and going on tour for it was just not an enjoyable experience for any of them. It was also really bad timing because Chris Stein's health was a major issue. Debbie says that they all at some point thought that he had HIV because of how bad he was. They went to countless doctors. No one really knew it was wrong until he was finally diagnosed. And forgive me, I'm probably saying this wrong. Femagus vulgaris, a rare autoimmune disease. Do you know what? I, as soon as you said it took them a long time to diagnose it, in my head I went, I bet it's autoimmune. Yeah. So I haven't heard of that particular one. But I can, yeah, definitely say that those autoimmune ones can really mess with the person. And it can sometimes take years to diagnose because you have to rule things out. You have to do this. And yeah. Okay. Gotcha. This is particularly brutal. It causes blistering and broken skin. And it covered his throat, which made him unable to eat. And so he was basically just like wasting away. And usually it starts in the throat and then it spreads externally. And if left untreated, it's just a bunch of like, it causes open raw flesh wounds. And it just sounds very painful and horrible. Mm -hmm. So he managed to somehow complete that tour and then ended up in the hospital for three months after to heal. Mm hmm. At the time this happened... And yeah, sorry. I just say this about like autoimmune stuff too. The rock star lifestyle is the literal worst thing you could possibly do for it. Like high intensity, high stress, late nights. Exactly. No wonder he had to be hospitalized for three months afterwards. Mm -hmm. So around this time as well, both Chris and Debbie were heroin users. And mm-hmm. she said she would actually like bring him heroin to the hospital to help with the pain. Yeah. And she says at the time she was so stressed that without the numbing effect of the drugs, she really d- doesn't know how she would have coped. When he did come home, he was still very much feeling the effects. It would take him about three years to fully recover. And unfortunately, one of the side effects of the drugs was mood swings, which of course took a toll on their relationship. It was very low point for them. The band officially broke up after the last tour. Their record deal was gone. They were virtually broke. Debbie says, I guarantee anything we could have done in wrong business and management wise, we did it. We had terrible contracts and the people we paid to look after us were naturally more concerned with what was in it for them. We got taken. So it turns out their accountant hadn't bothered to pay their taxes for two years. And those were the years. Yeah. They were like mostly lucrative at that point. So before the last tour, they bought a five-story house in the Upper East Side, which got taken by the IRS. They took her car. More importantly, the IRS took away their health insurance while Chris was still in the hospital. Yeah. Oh, no. So they went from just buying this five-story house in the Upper East Side to living in a one-bedroom in Chelsea. And of course, the IRS took like their bank account so like she couldn't even pay bills she was using like money orders and cash to try to like pay the bills and just survive 
That doesn't sound chill at all. And it's crazy because like you also think, well, oh, like they they just heart of glass is out. Call me is out like all these big. But they're they're struggling. They're barely surviving. Right. An interesting job opportunity came to Debbie around then. It turns out her and Chris were huge wrestling fans and they would watch it on TV. They would go to the live shows. There was a musical comedy in London at the time called Trafford Tansy, the Venus Flytrap, and they were bringing that to New York City and they wanted Debbie to play Tansy. So she actually trained extremely hard. She beefed up for the role. Andy Kaufman played the referee. It was renamed T-Neck Tansy and it ran in previews for six weeks and it was really loved by the audience, but critics slaughtered it. So unfortunately, it went nowhere, but she really loved doing the wrestling thing. I mean, wrestling in the eight. I was I was into wrestling myself in the nineties. So from one wrestling gal to another, I think that sounds like a very fun project. Andy yeah. Kaufman, that's pretty cool. And as I mentioned, like they were heroin users and they were addicts. And one of the things in the book too, like where I talked about how she's held back a little bit in it. Like I, she she mentions that. She, it happened and that she was a user it they went through rough times with it but she doesn't go into any detail about that so like it's basically like a sentence or two in the book like yes i was a user i don't know how much of a user i don't know how she or when she stopped all that it's just not in the book did were they shooting it again it doesn't say so i don't i i wouldn't See, I'm saying like, I, I don't think so. But like, how would I know? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Things are good, though. Things are starting to look up. That same year, Debbie got her biggest movie role to date in Cronenberg's Videodrome. Have you seen it? Oh, I love that movie. so. Oh, my God. Much. Like me over here. I've never heard of it. And you're like, oh, I love it. Oh, my God. It's so good, Shanti. That's such the difference between between me and you. Yeah. Look, okay, you're going to come to the farmhouse this winter. You are going to come with a hard drive of movies that I must see. And we are going to curl up and we're going to watch movies all winter, okay? Okay. That sounds perfect, actually. I cannot okay. wait for that. Around 1986, Debbie was starting to miss music. So she released her second solo album called Rockbird. One of the main reasons she didn't tour as a solo artist is because Chris was still not completely well and she didn't want to be touring or anything without him. Instead, she kind of went back into film. She worked with George Romero in Tales of the Dark Side and Crazy Streets, where she worked with Alec Baldwin. She also worked with Andy Warhol on his MTV show, Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes. You can see some of that on YouTube as well. Chris wrote the music for it. Another announcer on that show was Jerry Hall. Oh, Again, cool. Yeah, check it out on YouTube. Warhol passed away very soon after that, and Debbie had known him since her Max's days, and he was a big supporter of Blondie, so his death hit her pretty hard. Uh, she says she realized later she was in mourning for two years. She says, It was a doubly emotional time for me for another reason. Earlier... On the same day Andy died, Chris and I split up. 13 years of deep intimacy and creativity with Chris was changing a different dynamic. And now, the sudden death of a revered idol. So, yes, there was this shift 
in her and Chris's relationship, but they still continued to see each other every day and they were still like good friends. It wasn't like they split in like in a negative way and ended. It was just a transition. So a big highlight of the 80s for Debbie was working with John Waters on Hairspray. Oh, cool. Yeah. She had known Divine for years as he was a fixture in the New York scene. And he actually lived just a block away from Chris and her. And it was Divine who introduced them to John. Cool. Yeah. That was when her and Chris wrote the theme song for Polyester, which then led to her snagging the iconic role of Velma Von Tussle. So she says it was so much fun filming that when shooting was over, none of us wanted to leave. All of us were broken up. We wanted it to go on forever. I didn't want to go home. I just wanted to keep living in this movie, which I I love because you know how much I love John Waters. And Yeah, this sounds so, this is so interesting. I didn't, uh, I knew I was going to learn some things about Debbie Harry, but I had no idea that there was this whole other side of her. Yeah. Yeah. So Debbie went back to her love of music in 1989. She released her third solo album, Deaf, Dumb, and Blonde. (laughs) She recorded it in England, and she has some nice memories there. Half the songs on the album Debbie had written with Chris. So again, they were still most definitely collaborating. I thought we'd play a clip from her song, I Want That Man. Oh, yes. So good. So that album didn't really sell that well in the U.S., but it did well overseas and she decided to tour with it. And Chris joined her on that tour. And by that time, they were both dating different people. And for a few years, late 80s, early 90s, Debbie, and again, I had no idea, dated Penn from like Penn and Teller, like the the magician. Isn't that crazy? I'm sorry, what? Yeah. And again, she doesn't go into like he has like two paragraphs in the book, but they dated for years. She doesn't like hypnotize her. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you know what might have done it? She does have one story in the book about him that while they were together, he invented like a hot tub or a jacuzzi that is meant to get women off. No. Yeah. And it's like patented. (laughs) Like he still makes money off of that. Yeah. It's called just sit really closely to a jet. Yeah. But he got, he made it where like the jets are positioned perfectly or something. I don't know. Um, but I, another a fun fact about Penn, apparently he makes jets, jacuzzis for women. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. So yeah, I can't really tell you anything about their relationship because she doesn't really give you anything except that detail. Fabulous. Over the next few years, Debbie was very busy. She collaborated on a song with Iggy Pop called Well Did You Ever? And, and did they ever? No, they never. Well, never ever. <laughs> At least not in the book. 
She played Wigs, Wigstock, and she recorded her fourth solo album called Debravation. She also toured with a jazz band called the Jazz Passengers, where she got to play small, intimate shows, which she really, really loved. She also had minor parts in many films and a larger role in a film called Heavy, which stars Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. Another major thing happened in the mid-90s. Blondie got back together. They played a few gigs here and there. In 1999, they released their reunion album, No Exit. After that tour, Chris got married to his girlfriend, Barbara, who he is still married to. They eloped in Vegas, and Debbie was kind of sad because she wasn't invited. She said, maybe it was a bit awkward for Barbara having me as an omnipresent ex. We never sat down and talked about it in terms of he's my husband, he's my ex. I think we did it in a sweeter, more natural way by learning about each other and growing to like each other as people in spite of possible fears and anxieties. Chris is a loving person. I don't think he would do anything to make Barbara feel uncomfortable or me for that matter. Chris is one of the most important people in my life, if not the most important. I love Chris deeply and I always will. He's a great friend and I'm godmother to their two girls, Akira and Valentina. Right on. Yeah. It's nice to be adult about things. Yeah. You know, for, uh, for the most part, being an adult sucks, but... But sometimes That's really nice. make it work. Yeah. Making it work. So Debbie talks about Joey Ramone's passing along with 9-11 happening. And both of those things, of course, really affected her. She watched in real time from her window. She said, when I was going through that mourning period, I said to myself, oh, God, I wish it was the 70s again. I kept wishing myself back to those early days, eventually coming to the inevitable conclusion that things would never be the same again. Yeah. Yeah. I- I find it fascinating that, you know, Debbie was through and through a New York girl, but you hear so often musicians, once they hit a certain point in their lives, going to L.A. Yeah. And yeah. living in L.A. But she, she stayed true to New York. She stayed true. Chris and his wife, Barbara, decided to move out of the city, actually, but they just went upstate. So they're still there. But that was kind of a blow to Debbie because Chris was like her touchstone for so long. And like she was used to kind of seeing him daily. Mm -hmm. But she had like a kind of revelatory moment about her life around this time. Um, She got some issues. She had some issues, of course, like being an adopted child and like the abandonment thing that that comes with. But she says like she it shifted into an acceptance and it was like a very important moment for her she does talk about trying to locate her mom and she did but her mother did not want to be in contact so she never got to actually meet her but she she got to find out about her okay so when blondie got back together their no their album no exit or for their album, No Exit, it really ignited a fire there. So they continued on. They released The Curse of Blondie in 2003. They went back on the road. In 2006, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She said, I couldn't believe it. There were so many famous names I thought would have gotten in before us, and Blondie was initially never taken that seriously by the music industry. I had never taken the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that seriously either, but to be honest, it felt great to get that validation. And Shirley Manson from Garbage did the induction speech, and that same year, CBGB's closed for good. Wow. Yeah. 
Patty Smith played the Sunday show and Blondie and the Dictators played the final Saturday night one. So, oh, cool. Yeah. One of my favorite moments of all time was going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with you. Just oh. me and you. It was like just me and you. It I know. was so cool. I know. That was so much fun. I think about that often, actually. That was. I, I do too. I think about that trip often. And that whole trip was magical. That's right. So in 2007, Debbie released another solo album, her first in 14 years. That one was called Necessary Evil. She's really proud of that one and says it's her most personal. Cool. In 2011, Blondie released Panic of Girls and then Ghosts of Download in 2014. In 2015, Debbie was offered a solo gig in New York City, playing two shows a night for 10 nights at this really small, intimate venue. And she really loves when she gets to do like the small things because I guess they're so used to the bigger crowds and everything. In 2015, they were beginning to record their latest album, Pollinator, when David Bowie died. Hmm. And they were actually recording at the Magic Shop, which is where Bowie recorded Black Star. And she says that, like, they really felt his spirit there in the room. Of course they did. Of course. So Debbie, around the end of the book, says this. Sometimes I think I did things backwards. In the grand tradition of rock and roll, when you join a band, you're supposed to go crazy and act wild. But I did all that before I met Chris and we formed a band. I was so very happy in my relationship with Chris and really involved. So in a sense, I settled down into music. Another thing, people say you're happiest when you're young, but I'm happier now. I know who I am, even if I'm not more in control, but I'll never forget those early days in New York. As a rock artist, to be going out of New York was the best thing in the world that could have happened to me. Wherever I go, I'm always comparing it to New York. It's not the way it was. None of us are, but it's still thriving and vibrant. My friends are in New York, my social life's in New York, and everything that I'm attracted to and have ever wanted to be is in New York. New York is my pulse. New York is my heart. I'm still a New York punk. I love that. Yeah. Good. Yes. And I figured I, that's where I'm going to end this because she's just a New York punk, still enjoying music, still enjoying life, just, you know, doing her thing. And that's it, eh? You know, like I know you and I, like earlier, we talked about all of the great times that we had when we were younger and touring and and going on tour vans and buses with bands and stuff but I love that and I've been loving getting older with you too you know and and experiencing life with you as an adult now and uh just take me to New York though links take me to New York please the minute we can travel again where it's safe and we can fully enjoy the city me and you are going and you're gonna see New York through my eyes I need to. I really do because I hear her say that and I know you said similar things and I really do want to see New York through both your and Debbie Harry's eyes. That was awesome. Thank you, Lynx. I really enjoyed that. I had a great time. Yeah, me too. Uh, Debbie's just so cool and she's got a great story. And like you said before, it's like it's nice knowing that we, we hear so many stories about people just magically fall things falling into place and it's nice to kind of hear some sometimes you know there is a struggle so like don't give up she went back to jersey and 
you know, kind of didn't think it was going to happen for her, but it did. And if she hadn't persisted, then none of it would have. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Yes, thank you. We'll see you again next time. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Fat Five Freddy told me everybody's side. DJ spinning, I said, my, my. Flash is fast. Flash is cool. Francois, c'est pas. Flash ain't no deuce. And don't stop. Sure shot. Go out to the parking lot and get in your car and drive real far and drive all night. And then you see a light and comes right down and lands on the ground. And out comes a man from Mars. And you try to run, but he's got a gun. And he shoots you dead and he eats your head. You go out at night eating cars. You eat Cadillacs, Lincolns too, Mercury's and Subaru. And you don't stop. You keep on eating cars. Then when there's no more cars, you go out at night and eat up bars where the people meet. Face to face, dance cheek to cheek. One to one, man to man. Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary and is part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at PantheonPodcasts.com. All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods or see us at R&R Archaeology on Instagram. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.